Acts chapter 8. Sunday morning we're studying the book of Acts together. Come to chapter 8. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and you just wave, get their attention. They'll put a Bible in your hand. It'll be marked right to our passage that we're studying this morning for your convenience. If you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from your Creator to you today. Acts chapter 8, verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. And so he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under uh, Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. And then the Spirit said to Philip, Go near and overtake this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. And the place in the Scripture which he read was this, He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation was uh, justice was taken away, and who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And so the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of some other man? And then Philip opened his mouth and, beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Now as they went down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See here is water. One hinders me from being baptized. And then Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered, and he said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. Now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all of the cities till he came to Caesarea, where we will run into him once again in chapter 21. Let's pray together now. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the revelation that it is of you. Lord, we have prayed today and we have sung today, spoken today of your glory and of your goodness. Lord, we thank you for that in our lives. We thank you for your glory that is upon our lives and in our lives, even when it sometimes feels dwarfed by the circumstances of life. Thank you for the firm grip that you have upon each and every one of us, Lord. Thank you that the work that you have begun in our lives, you're going to be faithful to bring to completion and that one day you are going to present us before the Father with exceeding joy. Thank you for the peace that this brings to us, the expectation it brings to our lives that nothing else in the world ever could. And so we declare ourselves to be rich, Lord, beyond description in our Savior. And we thank you, Father, this morning for Jesus. We turn to your word to 
learn about you and your ways and your plan for our lives. We don't want to study it as some kind of a thing now that we have to do or we have to do it in order to gain your favor. Lord, we long to discover the Christianity and all of its purity and all of its fullness that was purchased for us by our Savior and not only to examine it on the pages of Scripture, but to make it our daily portion. So continue to open our eyes up, Lord, to this wonderful life that you have saved us into. Spare us, Lord. Deliver us from ever settling into a Christianity that is far below the one that our Savior bought for us. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I remember listening to a series of teachings on cassette tape quite a number of years ago now. I wasn't yet a pastor, in fact, fairly new Christian. And it was a series on teaching the Bible by a man named Dr. Van Cleve, who was one of Chuck Smith's instructors when he was in Bible college. And uh, I remember Karen and I, we uh, didn't have much money and we were kind of getting, you know, getting away for a day or two or a few days was a real luxury in those days. It still is, but it was especially in those days. And, and I remember we went up to Tahoe to spend a weekend there and I listened to Dr. Van Cleve in that series uh, all the way through. And she still uh, kids me about it uh, today. But Dr. Van Cleve, he had a remarkable voice. It really captured you, at least it did me. And in one lesson, he talked about the fact that when you have a particular need in a person's life and the pastor preached from the Bible something that meets that need, then you're going to have an occasion so that's my best imitation of Dr. Van Cleve. It's not too bad if you know him. But he had that cadence with his voice that just kind of carried you along. He could read the phone book and you would listen to him. And then our Bible passage, you'll say, this is the worst introduction to a Bible study I've ever... But in this Bible passage, as I was studying it this week, I thought of Dr. Van Cleve because we have exactly what he called that occasion. You had an Ethiopian eunuch in our passage who is seeking, desperately seeking God in the need of salvation, and here he comes into contact with the message of salvation through the Holy Spirit, through a, a vessel of the Lord, a man by the name of Philip, both a deacon and a missionary, and now he continues his ministry as an evangelist. And I think the passage as you read it, and for me it's an old friend, for some of you it's an old friend, for some of you you're just hearing it for the very first time today, and, and others it's uh, kind of a, a distant memory in your mind. You've read it once or twice, but to become familiar with the passage, it just emanates spiritual life. It just emanates excitement concerning the supernatural of God. And this morning I want to do kind of a brief overview of the passage and ex exposition 
of this great event that occurs in chapter 8 here. And then I want to follow it with three kind of life lessons for us as Christians from the life of Philip. And there are some things that we want to get into related to the Ethiopian eunuch, but we'll save that, Lord willing, to examine next week. We remember from earlier in the chapter that God has used Philip, a deacon in the early church, to bring a great revival to the city of Samaria through the preaching of the gospel. And the effect of that preaching of the gospel upon that city of Samaria, probably uh, the capital city of the region of Samaria, named Samaria as well, the excitement that's captured within the passage over what it is that God did by His Spirit through uh, Philip, it just, again, just radiates off of the pages. We're told in verses 6 through 12 that with one accord the multitudes listened to what it was that Philip spoke to them. And then in verse 7, many were delivered of their demon possession, and many were paraly- who were paralyzed and lame were healed. The entire city, we're told, was filled with great joy. They believed unto salvation, and then they were water baptized. News of all of this gets back to Jerusalem, that they've got a revival going on in the capital city of Samaria, and there's just a mere deacon that is out there overseeing it. They're curious about it. They want to be of some help to it, and so they send two apostles, Peter and John, in order to investigate it, in order to be of some help with what it is that's broken out there by the Holy Spirit. And it's so exciting. Here you've got an entire city reached for Christ. It's what every one of us longs for concerning the city that we live in. And here it happens, an entire city. Everybody is talking about Jesus. Everybody's talking about the power of God, the God of the Bible. Everybody's talking about the power of the gospel. And here an entire city has been reached for Christ by one man in so short a time. And we read it kind of casually as it's recorded in the Bible. And sometimes we just have to slow down and think about the miracle that it is, but then the emotion that people would be feeling. We think about in the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah ministered for 40 years without a single recorded conversion. Not one convert in 40 years. Here's an entire city reached with the gospel. You can talk to many missionaries who have gone out into remote parts of the world and spent decades from their life ministering there. And the fruit of it is one, two, three, four, five Christians that have come out of a lifetime of work. And when you see this passage in the light of what is not always the case in Christian work, it just, it just grabs you in terms of the power and the excitement of what has happened as we would just put ourselves in the middle of the scene. We're living in that city and we're experiencing as a Christian the dynamic of what God is doing in bringing the lost to Himself. And God has used you. Imagine if you put yourself in Philip's place and imagine God has used you as His instrument. And I think that perhaps Philip's, I don't know, Philip, I don't know for sure, but perhaps he was thinking, this is it. This is as great as it gets. This is exactly where God has called me. 
He's called me to pastor a church here in the city of Samaria, and now let's begin the building project. But instead, the Lord called Philip to leave the excitement of this city of Samaria to go 80 miles southwest to a very dry, dusty, desert town named Gaza. And he leaves this very thriving ministry that he's in the middle of that God has used him to start and takes him into the wilderness. And it simply doesn't make any sense to the natural eye or to the natural man. Almost humorously, you see in verse 1, even Luke can't resist his commentary concerning all of this and what God calls on Philip to do to go to Gaza. He describes Gaza and the road to Gaza. This is desert. And yet Philip, we're told in uh, verse 27 there, Philip, uh, is his obedience to the commandment of the Lord to go there is immediate. He arose and went, we're told. He had no explanation from God. God didn't tell him, hey, now this is what I've got in mind. No additional information. He only had a command from God. He was to leave this environment, this part of the harvest field, and he was now to make his way to the city of Gaza. And Philip did so in just simple faith. As he's on the road to Samaria, from Samaria to Gaza, behold the word that is used there in the passage. He sees this interesting sight. Wouldn't have taken much to get him to behold. It's this unending scene I've seen on a couple of trips to Israel. We've gone to the place where the road from Jerusalem to Gaza is and to look at that, and it is a very remote area, a very arid area, and there's mostly just rocks and dirt. And so here he's on this path. He's making his way, headed toward the city, has no idea what God has in mind, and then behold, he sees this uh, entourage, a man of Ethiopia making his way across the wilderness on the road and thinks to himself, well, this is interesting. This is something different than dirt and rocks, and he uh, takes notice of it. The description of the Ethiopian eunuch is an interesting one, and it's important to recognize and understand each part of the description. It's not unessential. Uh, There's no way to glean from this passage, as we will next week, the great lesson that I think lies in the life of the Ethiopian eunuch without understanding everything that God speaks of him in this passage. We're told that he was a man of Ethiopia. So he is coming, making his way from Jerusalem back home. He is from the continent of Africa and the region of Africa that we know today as the Sudan, as opposed to modern Ethiopia. We're told that he's a eunuch, that is, that he'd been castrated, is a very, very cruel practice in the ancient world, and, uh, but very, very common for men who were given high positions in which they found themselves very, very close to the king or another person in power, having regular kind of uh, contact with that king, and as a result coming into contact with his wife, typically his concubines as well. And this was a way in which the king would assure the safety of his wife and his concubines from any kind of competition by any cabinet members or any males that he brought close to him. 
Another purpose of castration in the ancient world is that it tended to keep a man very focused upon his work and whatever position that he had been given within that cabinet. And so this was the reasoning behind this kind of practice in the ancient world and even in the not-so-ancient uh, uh, human history. This has been practiced even in more modern uh, times. We're told in verse 27 that he was a man of great authority under Candace, the queen, and he was in charge of her uh, treasury. Candace is not the name of the queen. It is a title that was given to uh, the queen of the king in that culture in much the same way that we would speak of a pharaoh in the ancient world. It wasn't his name. It was the title that uh, he bore. And so at that time in Ethiopia, the king was regarded as a god, and because he was considered a god, he was too sacred to engage in any kind of administration. So that fell to his wife, who then became, practically speaking, the ruler of the country. And so this is a man who is both powerful, very powerful, and very important within his nation. He was the treasurer of a country that was very, very wealthy at the time. We're told further in verses 27 and 28 that he'd come to Jerusalem to worship and to worship the God of the Bible. And he's now returning from his spiritual pilgrimage back into Ethiopia. He'd probably traveled from Ethiopia to Jerusalem in order to celebrate one of the three great Jewish feasts of the Jewish religious uh, calendar, the annual feast there. And in those days before Christianity, there was only one monotheistic religious system in the world, and that is that there was a religious system that believed that there was only one God, and that lone monotheistic system was Judaism. And the rest of the world worshipped a multitude of false gods who were created by man in his imaginations and created by man in his own image. The worship of the ancient deities was essentially the deification of the flesh. It was the deification of uh, a human being, the deification of man's emotions, the deification of his intellect, the deification of his uh, uh, lusts, the desires, the passions of his flesh. And so rather than resisting these things or finding something wrong with them, they simply found a God that would not only wink at these things, and uh, but then would endorse these things, and it allowed a person to fully engage in all of the lusts of the fallen nature, all of the lusts of the flesh, and yet somehow do these things as an expression to the various gods that people had come uh, up with. And with all of that, of course, came all of the sexual immorality and the drunkenness and the partying and the violence and the corruption and the injustice that came with it, all the deeds of the flesh that Paul wrote about in writing to the churches in Galatia where he said, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, 
and the like of which I tell you beforehand, just as I have told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And when Paul wrote that list, it wasn't that he sat down and did a Google search on what are the things that people worship in life, what are the great sins that people are engaging in, the top 10, the top 20 in the United States of America. All Paul did was simply throw open his front door or open up the shutter to the home that he was living in and just look out at the condition of the people that were living all around him and then to be able to jot those things down. It was the result of the deities, the gods that they were worshiping. And, and uh, Paul was exposed to it continually. And ultimately, when a person finds themselves in that place, thinking people at least, will have, having seen all that comes out of the worship of the flesh, whether it's, you know, sanctified in some false way by uh, some religious system or whether a person just gives themselves entirely to debauchery on their own. But once a thinking person has spent some time examining this in the lives of other people or then experiencing it for their own lives... Uh, in the ancient world, they ultimately became very attracted to Judaism, to the law and to the prophets, where they found one God as opposed to scores and scores of gods that you now had to keep track of and you now had to try and appease. And they found in the law and in the prophets in the Old Testament a very clear and a very moral and a very holy standard that uh, gave life meaning and gave life purpose and direction. And if they desired then to convert to Judaism out of their personal debauchery or out of the idolatry of their life, males would then be circumcised, water baptized in a mikveh, after which they became proselytes. They became converts to Judaism. And if they weren't too hip to the idea of being circumcised and and the baptism, but they still wanted to enjoy the Hebrew Scriptures, they still wanted to attend synagogue in the city they lived in as a Gentile, they still wanted to worship God from the court of the Gentiles on the temple grounds, then they could do so by becoming a God-fear. And the Ethiopian eunuch was clearly one of these searchers who had come to rest in Judaism as a proselyte or as a God-fearer. And here he is, verse 28, he's sitting in his chariot, he's reading a scroll containing the prophecy of Isaiah. This chariot that he's in, don't picture Ben-Hur, don't picture a military vehicle of some kind. It would have been like a very large ox cart, only fabulously outfitted, an Escalade, okay, for the ancient world. He's a powerful man. He's a wealthy man. Room for him to sit there, room for the driver of the oxen or whatever livestock were pulling uh, the chariot, room also for him to have a servant alongside him, and then even room to invite Philip ultimately to come up and join him in the chariot. So this is a pretty luxurious uh, vehicle that he is in. While he was attending the feast in Jerusalem, apparently during one of the breaks in the conference, 
Uh, he went to the Calvary Chapel bookstore and he decided to buy a scroll, to buy a book of some kind to continue to grow in his relationship with God. And he picked up probably one of the scrolls most in demand, and that was a scroll of Isaiah's prophecy. This speaks to us not only about his hunger for God, but it speaks to us about his wealth. For an individual in the ancient world to own a copy of the Scriptures, when the only way you could have a copy of the Scriptures was to have something that somebody had written by hand. There was no printing press in those days. There was no mass production of these things. It took a person a long time to copy these things for it to be checked and double-checked and checked six times by others before it would then go out into circulation. And so only a very wealthy man would have been able to afford a handwritten copy of the Old Testament or even the book of Isaiah. Philip then received this second command, verse 29. The first command was to go to Gaza. And then in verse 29, he receives a second command from God, go near and overtake this chariot. And Philip obeys and he runs in order to do so, we're told. You can picture it in your mind. I think it's good to do that. And here is this caravan. It's kind of creaking along uh, you know, slowly making its way across the wilderness. And then Philip comes running uh, in order to overtake uh, the chariot. And then began this discussion between Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch in verse 30 through verse 35. And Philip heard the Ethiopian eunuch reading from the prophet Isaiah. So the eunuch is reading the uh, scroll that he's purchased. He's reading it out loud. And that wasn't an unusual thing for do, people to do in the ancient world. It wasn't even, it isn't even something unusual for a person to do today. When you come to a passage in a book or something that's kind of complex, there's a very tight uh, thought progression that's going on in the book. It isn't unusual for any of us then to read it out loud to try and see if reading it and hearing it the reverberation of my voice off the wall will make this click for me. Remember, papyrus, scrolls, uh, writing materials, very, very precious, very, very expensive in the ancient world. And so when the scribe would make a copy of the Scriptures, it wouldn't be at a number 14 font or a number 24 or whatever you and I have the luxury of putting our computer up to in terms of word processing or large print Bibles, they wrote so tiny and, the wor- and there weren't gaps between the words. The words were one upon the other and uh, almost virtually no punctuation related to that. And so all of this being as tight as, as it is, you would kind of have to read it one word at a time to be able to follow the thought. And so it is, this is what he's doing. He's reading out loud. And Philip then posed the question to him in verse 30, do you understand what you are reading? And so you picture him. He's, uh, I don't know if he's a fitness bus, uh, buff, but he is now kind of jogging alongside this chariot now, and he's trying to begin a conversation with the Ethiopian eunuch who responds to his question in verse 31, how can I unless someone guides me? 
Now, what a refreshing humility in this man. This guy, and, it, and I love it. You don't always find, I'm not saying that it's extremely rare, but it's fairly rare in people that are in kind of cabinet positions in terms of power in the nation that they live in, fabulous power, fabulous wealth, all that goes with it. You don't always find humility in that kind of a person and a willingness to engage in a discussion or to verbalize their ignorance concerning some subject to a stranger who is now running alongside the chariot. And there's something beautiful about the vulnerability of this uh, Ethiopian eunuch and his humility. It is pride that keeps so many people away from asking the questions about life that need to be asked, asking questions about God that ought to be asked, asking questions about the Bible, and thus exposing our ignorance about it in order to then receive an answer to what it is that uh, are the questions of our minds. And here's a man who has a hunger for truth and a love for truth that is greater than his pride, and he has pride like anybody else or that somebody would think of him as less or less important because he would have a question about something in life, even if that question has to do uh, with God. And so he admits his ignorance, not merely to Philip, but he admits his ignorance before his entire entourage, before his servants. I'm telling you, it's remarkable, but God is going to reward it. And then he invites in verse 31... Philip to sit with him in the chariot, and he's not only reading from the scroll of Isaiah, but we learn that he is reading from Isaiah chapter 53, which contains one of the most astonishing prophecies concerning Jesus as the Messiah in the entire Old Testament, where in the passage, as it's described there in verses 32 and 33, Isaiah describes the Messiah as being led to his death. And so Jesus did at Calvary. But then more, that not only will he die, but he will die as a sacrifice, verse 32. And so Jesus did for our sin. And then further, that he won't defend himself. He'll sit silent in the face of the accusations that are being brought against him. And so Jesus did, that he will not experience justice at his trial or at his examination, and so Jesus did not, that he would die, and not only would he die, but that this one who is described here, this Messiah, would die childless, and so Jesus did. And this eunuch then in verse 34 asked Philip pointedly who this was referring to. And this, my friends, is known as an open door in Christianity related to witnessing. This is a door that is so open and so big, you could drive a white freight liner through it. And Philip knows it. It would be like you going to one of the local Starbucks, sitting there, minding your own business as a Christian, so to speak, and there you are enjoying your latte or whatever it is that you drink. And then a person is sitting next to you, and they read John 3.16 out loud, and then they turn to you and say, do you have any idea what this means? 
You're ready to notch your belt. I mean, that's the greatest starting point in the New Testament to tell somebody about Jesus. You could hardly improve on uh, another passage in the Old Testament as a beginning point to share Christ with somebody else. And so here is this uh, opportunity. I mean, no preacher could hope for more. And Philip isn't going to miss the opportunity. And, of course, he's recognizing the hand of the Lord in all of this. And we're told in verse 35 that Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. How it is that Jesus was and is the fulfillment of that great prophecy of Isaiah. And it is beautiful and I would love to have a copy of that particular CD. And then as the account continues in verse 36, they come to a body of water. The eunuch asks if there's any kind of of a hindrance as they come to that body of water to him then being baptized and is there any reason essentially he's asking why I can't become a follower or disciple of Jesus right now the subject of baptism obviously uh, Philip had brought it up in some way in his discussion concerning how to come to know uh, the Lord And uh, it was the Ethiopian eunuch's way of saying, I believe, I acknowledge Jesus as the Savior, and I want to profess Him publicly as my Savior. And Philip responded that he could be baptized if he believes in Jesus as the Messiah, as his Lord, with all of his heart, verse 37. And the eunuch then confessed Jesus as the, as the Christ and as the Son of God. He commanded the chariot to be stopped, as you see there, and both Philip and the eunuch then went into the water, and Philip then baptized him. The Holy Spirit comes on the scene at, immediately after the water baptism. I'd love a video of it, by the way. So if you got that somewhere, or it's on YouTube and you found it, and I haven't been able to yet, The Holy Spirit comes and catches Philip away and takes him to Azotos. And the word that's used there for taking him away is the word that means to snatch up, to to snatch away, uh, to grab and take out with great force. It's the same word that's used to describe the rapture in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He is snatched out of the scene immediately, taken to Azotus, and then he makes his way up the Mediterranean coast and settles in the city of Caesarea, uh, where again we will come uh, to see him again in chapter 21. The eunuch, we're told in verse 39, he goes his way, uh, on his way rejoicing. And, and you just stop and you put yourself in his shoes And just this morning as a Christian, do you remember the day you got saved? Do you remember leaving that service or leaving that room or leaving that conversation? And here is this supernatural dynamic that has occurred. God Almighty in the person of the Holy Spirit has come into your life. Everything has changed. You know it has changed. And this great miracle has occurred. This has occurred in his life as well. And he's feeling All of that. And church tradition tells us that the eunuch then went home and he evangelized Ethiopia. And uh, sometimes church traditions can't always be trusted. But it doesn't seem inconceivable to me that he then went home and uh, going home that he would not be able to keep a secret among all of the power brokers of Ethiopia 
what had happened to him on his pilgrimage. They would ask the Ethiopian eunuch, how was your pilgrimage to Jerusalem? Did you find what you were looking for? Was it a great experience? Was it a nice time? And uh, surely he's going to tell them about, well, it was, you know, relatively uneventful. It was what I thought it would be. Might have been his first pilgrimage to Jerusalem or his tent. We don't really know. But here on my way back, I had picked up a, purchased a scroll of the prophecy of Isaiah. And then this man came, and this is the sermon that he preached to me concerning Christ. And in doing so, I've been born again and so forth. And then pulling out in their very presence the scroll in which uh, the entire event occurred, reading to them the passages that are described there in Isaiah chapter 53, and then uh, recounting to them the very sermon that uh, Philip preached to them and doing so to, in the highest level of government there in Ethiopia. We do know that in that time and then even later, a great work of the Holy Spirit occurred uh, through the gospel in that part of the world. I love testimonies. Uh, I love to hear testimonies. I like them in like 20 minutes or less, but I do love testimonies. And a testimony is essentially a salvation story. It is your salvation story. It is my salvation story. And it's wonderful to listen to how somebody got saved, how they came from this particular place in life, how they came uh, to be exposed to Jesus, what happened in their thinking, what happened in their life that opened them up to uh, receiving Him as a Savior, receiving God's truth in their heart that they needed to be saved, and how that light goes on for them that Jesus is the Savior that they've been looking for. He's the meaning and the purpose of life that uh, they and you have been looking for. And in all of it, we're listening to an individual person's testimony, but we're always, what fascinates us is we're listening to a miracle of the Holy Spirit. And they're never dull because every testimony has the same kind of three ingredients. This is what I was. This is how I came into contact with Christ. And then this is the person I've become as a result of becoming a Christian. That's everybody's testimony. But they're all different in how that happens in a person's life. Because if we were to be able to take the time and listen to each person's testimony in this room we would be able to listen to, as with this man, and recognize the miracle and the supernatural of the Holy Spirit that was involved in our conversion every bit as much as happened in this man's life. The preparation of our heart, uh, the gods that we worship, the idolatry that we engaged in, the debauchery that we engaged in, all of this as a preparation to disillusion us with man and the gods that men were worshiping to see through them and realize this isn't the worship of God. This isn't the meaning of life. This is just the indulging of the flesh in an attempt to sanctify it by man. I want something greater than this and then how God brings someone supernaturally into our life to expose us to the gospel. It is tremendous uh, to always to hear a testimony and how God did it and what God did in order to make it uh, accomplish all of that. And, of course, there's no testimony so dear to us in terms of just pure 
personal experience than our own. God did that in this man's life. And for each of us as Christians this morning, he's done as great a miracle in each one of our lives. Now, let me close this morning with a couple of applications from the passage to our own lives as Christians. Supremely, I think that this passage teaches us on a practical level the importance and the blessing of being spirit-led as Christians. In this passage, Philip is led by God all the way through the entirety of the events. He is, we are told in verse 26, an angel of the Lord communicated God's will to him. There in that verse 26. Later in verse 29, the Holy Spirit told Philip to then go near and overtake uh, the chariot. Finally, in verse 39, the Holy Spirit carried Philip away after the baptism of the Ethiopian eunuch. Now remember, uh, again, as we look at the detail of this particular event, again, for some of us, this is very, very familiar territory. For others, they're hearing it for the very first time in this room. And for others, this is the second or third time uh, that they've heard it within their life. Remember as well that as we're studying the book of Acts here, we're studying it for insights and instruction concerning a Christianity and the type of Christian in the early church that ultimately turned the entire world upside down for Christ. And that was a confession made concerning the Christians in the early church, not by Christians and not by her friends, but made by the enemies of Christianity. And so we study the book of Acts here this morning in order to look at that kind of a Christianity, that kind of a Christian, that kind of relationship with God. We have the same desire within our own hearts to turn our homes upside down for Christ, our neighborhoods upside down for Christ, our workplace, our schools, the cities that we live in upside down for Christ. And here is the key for discovering the Christianity that allows that to happen, that possesses that kind of dynamic and that kind of power. And one of the things that Luke and the Holy Spirit wants us to understand about these early Christians from the life of Philip here is that they were individually and they were personally led by the Holy Spirit. They were not only empowered by the Holy Spirit, which we have learned from the book of Acts thus far. It isn't just the life that we see on the pages of the book of Acts. It just doesn't come out of God merely empowering us as Christians, but then the importance of being spirit-led as Christians as well. All of what we are reading here this morning was the result of the Holy Spirit speaking to a Christian individually and personally. In all of this, Philip wasn't told to do these things by the apostles. He was not told to do these things by a church board. He was not told to do these things by a committee. He was led in his personal relationship with God by the Holy Spirit. 
Now, leaders within a church, uh, boards within a church, apostles within a church, or in the ancient world at least, all of these things have their place. But every Christian should know personally how to discern God's leading in our own lives and then to obey that leading. And not only as it relates to our own lives and the decisions that we're making in terms of our own lives, but then how to be used by God to impact other people around us. Now, the work of the Lord moves forward, I'm convinced, by and large through the leading of the prompting of the Holy Spirit and the lives of individual Christians. So often as Christians, we're waiting for this great corporate move. And uh, so we talk about revival. I want revival as much as the next person and more than the average person. And I long for it and I pray for it. But revivals, as they occur in history, they occur as God just supernaturally wants to perform them uh, in history and to manifest himself in that way. But we must not wait as Christians in the three score and ten that are our lives to wait for some corporate move among God's people, some larger move uh, within a church or some greater thing called a revival to uh, hear God's voice, be led by the Holy Spirit and how he wants to supernaturally use us individually and independent of other people and something that's coordinated with uh, other people. And again, as I said, I think that by and large, certainly through church history, uh, the body of Christ and the work of the Lord has moved forward through the promptings and the leading of the Holy Spirit uh, in the lives of uh, individual Christians, through the use of individual Christians. And so it raises the question for us here this morning in terms of our individual Christian life to just ask ourselves in the privacy of our heart, no big heavy thing, no whipping or anything like that, but in light of what we see here in Philip's life and what is the norm as we see it in the book of Acts, Am I spirit-led in my life as a Christian? Am I a spirit-led Christian? When was the last time that I experienced one of his promptings within my life? And then the last time I did experience one of his promptings in my life, did I obey that prompting? Am I a Christian who is open to being led by the Holy Spirit? Do I begin my day? It doesn't take hours to do it. It can just take a very short period of time. Do I begin my day surrendering my life to God and to his purposes and asking him to use me in the day that lies out ahead of me? Do I begin the day with the expectation that God might prompt me to do something that I don't have in my plans uh, for the day? Or is my Christian life one in which, and this is a very easy place to slip into, where all of this was once a part of my Christian life a long time ago. But now over the days and the months and the weeks and the years, I've now settled into a more comfortable Christianity, uh, a less risky Christianity, a more predictable uh, Christianity, a safer Christianity. And as we see in our passage, though, the Spirit-led life is the most exciting life that a person can live. 
Again, as we look at Philip on this in the entirety of Acts chapter 8, the excitement just emanates off of the page here. The excitement of the supernatural of God and the leading of the Holy Spirit within his life. And being led by the Holy Spirit makes our lives an adventure that they will never otherwise be. And you know it to be true concerning your life. I know it to be true as well. And where you wake up, and if I look at in my life as one where I say, Lord, I want to be led by your Holy Spirit. I surrender to you and your leading in my life here today. And then we begin the day wondering, who knows what God is going to do today? As Jesus declared concerning the Holy Spirit in uh, John chapter 3, as he spoke to Nicodemus, he said, the wind blows where it wishes. And you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes. And so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. This isn't some kind of a crazy, unusual Christian life that Jesus uh, calls us into. It's one that he explains as being the norm as he describes it to Nicodemus there in John chapter 3. What does being led by the Holy Spirit look like practically in our lives? Well, in the course of the day, in one way or another, the Holy Spirit might impress you to do something that you wouldn't never otherwise think of otherwise. And here you begin the day and you're making your way through the day and in comes this thought, but there's the recognition by the Holy Spirit. There's a witness of the Holy Spirit to it that this is more than just a, flo- a thought that's kind of floating through my mind. And there is this idea within our minds to write a note of encouragement to someone that God reminds you of, that He puts on your heart. Sometimes it can be to put upon our hearts the idea of making a phone call to check in on someone that we haven't seen for a while just to make sure that they're okay. Sometimes the Lord will do this to prompt us in order to pray for someone that we would have never thought of to pray for. You think to yourself, I haven't thought of that person in 20 years. I haven't thought of that person in six months. Not only are they not on my prayer list on a daily basis, they're not even in my daily or monthly thoughts. And yet on this day... They're, they come in with a such force into our minds while it is that we're praying and this sense that I need to pray for them right now. Or it can occur, as it does in our passage here, where there's prompting to speak to someone. And uh, sometimes it can be a complete stranger, but to share the gospel with them, to share God's love with them. And here you are, you're walking around Modesto somewhere, perhaps downtown, and you would walk past that person as surely as you will walk past scores or hundreds of people in a given day. And yet for some reason on this day, God makes you notice that person and fills your heart with a love for them. And here you are, you find yourself walking up to them and saying, you know, this may seem weird to you, Uh, it even does to me. But I believe that I am supposed to tell you that God loves you and or that things are going to be okay in your life or to return to Him or whatever it might be. And always when I write a letter to another Christian, and very often 
when I'm responding by email uh, to uh, another Christian that I'm not in regular contact with them, I'll stop and I'll ask the Lord before I hit the send button, is there any verse of Scripture that you want to include, Lord? Is there any word of exhortation or edification or comfort? Is there anything more that you want this letter to be than just what I'm wanting it to accomplish in, you know, responding to something that they've written to me or corresponding to them in some way. Because I know as I am about to lick that envelope and to seal that up, I know how much that kind of thing has meant to me when God has prompted someone else's heart to send me a card or send me a note, and then here is this passage or here is this word from the Lord that is included as well, and it is just the right thing. And I want to be led of the Spirit. And before I call people so often, I will do the very same thing. Lord, before I hit that button that begins the the ringing of the phone, and before I begin this conversation, I know what I want this conversation to be. I know what it needs to accomplish, but I'm so blind to the most obvious things. And is there anything you want me to speak to this person? Is there any word of encouragement that you want to put on my heart that you want to speak to them as well? How is one led by the Holy Spirit? How does God lead us in our lives? How will I know that it is from Him? How do I know that this leading is from Him, this prompting that He's put upon my heart? I don't have the foggiest idea in terms of explaining it to you. I only know how it works in my life. And it's so personal And all I know is that it's God's problem. It is not my problem. All I can bring to God is the desire to be spirit-led, the desire to be used by God in this way. And then everything else is his problem in terms of teaching me about how to hear his voice or to recognize his voice or how to recognize when it's the flesh or when it, you know, it... It really is of God. And because it is so uh, very, very personal in our lives, it's different for every other person in terms of how God speaks to you, how he leads to you, how you understand it to be him. But what we can know is that God will work in each one of our lives to develop this ability to hear his voice to where we are able ultimately to differentiate between his prompting in our lives, a prompting of the Holy Spirit, and something that is just um, a very, very good pepperoni pizza that we ate too late at night. And so how to filter through all of that, all I do know is that God will develop that capacity to hear and recognize in each one of our lives as Christians. Jesus spoke in John chapter 10 in this vein. And he said, my sheep hear my voice. My sheep hear my voice. Now, it's incumbent upon him to teach us how to recognize his voice as a result. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So we begin this Christian life by hearing and obeying his voice calling us 
to salvation. And so we understand the prompting. We understand the conversation. We understand what that feels like within our lives, that, that work of the Holy Spirit. And now that we become Christians, in, then that conversation now continues by the Holy Spirit in our Christian lives, just as it does with Philip here. Now, a helpful uh, tip or two in this regard, I think in, in kind of, you know, making this something that is, is uh, uh, making it easier for this to happen within our lives. Number one, the importance of beginning each day with a time of prayer and reading the Bible. That does a lot of things in our life, but one of the things that it does is it, com- it begins the conversation with God. It starts the conversation with God at the beginning of the day. We've already talked with Him. The conversation has begun. It will be ongoing through the day. We're already talking with Him. The second thing that's important is to begin the day in prayer, in surrendering our lives to God's leading and His will for our lives that day. To just say something like, Lord, my life is yours. It belongs to you. This day is yours. And if you want to use me in some way that is supernatural in nature, I surrender to that. Please just let me know it in a way that I can understand. And what that does is it produces an an expectancy within my life that wouldn't otherwise be there. I'm open to Him using me and uh, speaking uh, to me. I'm spiritually sensitive to the possibility. And then the third thing after that is just to relax. And don't put any pressure on yourself, no need to strive. If He wants to use you in this way, then He will do so. And if He doesn't want to use us in that way today, then He won't. But our heart is turned kind of like a satellite dish toward Him if he wants to. Being spirit-led Christians and spirit-led as Christians is a very, very simple truth, but it is a vital one in trying to understand the vigor and the dynamic and the fruitfulness of the early church. And so the importance of each of us letting us determine by the grace of God to heed and to obey every prompting of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And the longer that I walk with the Lord, the more determined I am not to ignore those promptings and and to act upon them immediately. Think about the thousands. It's one of the great things about living in Modesto. Think about the thousands and the thousands and thousands of Christians who live in this community and in the surrounding communities. And imagine, and and again, this is not a guilt gotcha, but just to look at it in the light of the book of Acts. Imagine if each one of us were led by the Holy Spirit in this way on an individual basis, the dynamic, the spiritual dynamic that would be released into the community just on the basis of this alone, the potential, the the book of Acts dynamic that it would bring. And not only to the people who would be affected by that through our lives, but the dynamic that it would bring to our own lives as well. One of the greatest feelings that a person can ever experience in life 
is to be prompted by the Holy Spirit to do something, to say something, to write something. They don't know, make, can't make heads or tails of it. They don't understand it in any way. But we go ahead and we do it. And then we find out as we approach that person, we begin to talk to them. They break down, begin to cry, and they can't know how we can, as a complete stranger, know what was happening in their lives. And they know for a fact that God is in us of a truth. Or to share something with somebody, a passage of Scripture, and for them to say, that's exactly what I needed to hear. How could you know that? And then to have that afterglow of that experience and to realize God used me. I heard his voice and he used me to impact another person. It's one of the most wonderful things that a person can ever, ever experience in the Christian life. And the Christian life is intended to be supernatural in this regard. Let me also add that like Philip, it is important to obey these promptings immediately because so often they are time sensitive. If Philip did not obey God immediately, if he chose instead to say, well, I'll wait a day or two on that, the Ethiopian eunuch would have been long gone on his way back to Ethiopia. The opportunity would have been completely lost. When God prompts us to send that note of encouragement or to make that phone call, it's because that person needs that right now. And a week from now, it won't mean near as much to them as it would have earlier because then the crisis has passed or their tears have already dried or their despair has lifted. And over the years, there have been many, many times when I have obeyed the Lord's promptings and immediately gone over to someone, talked to them, given them a tract to share the gospel with them in stores or at gas stations or someone just walking down the street, walking on the other side of the street. And to say to them, I'm convinced that the Lord wants to tell me, tell you rather, about his love for you, and I want to give you this tract to read. But there have been many, many times where I have had the prompting and I haven't obeyed the prompting of the Holy Spirit. And most often it occurs because uh, instead of running to obey it like Philip does here, I delayed because I was too busy doing something else or I tried to figure it out intellectually. And I looked at the situation and why would I go speak to that woman when her baby is crying in her arms right now? She's got enough to deal with right now. Or it looks like the person is in a hurry. It looks like they're preoccupied at the time. Or they're surrounded like the Ethiopian eunuch was, surrounded by their peers. Why would I go up and speak to someone about the gospel when they're surrounded by their peers? But here we see it within the passage, the importance of hearing that prompting and then heeding that prompting. And I close with these two points. I won't develop them, but I want to at least speak them because my time is well over uh, with this morning. But I want to plant the seeds into those rich uh, preacher-like minds that, that you possess. Number two, we, we learn here in this regard the importance of heeding God's promptings even when they don't make perfect sense to us. made no sense to leave Samaria to go to Gaza. And God's leading oftentimes won't make sense to anyone but him at the moment. 
but it's a perfectly sensible thing to do. And so don't try to figure it out. Just know that when God prompts, there is a reason for it. And if church tradition is accurate here, here he is. He left a city in order to reach a continent. God knows what it is uh, that he is doing. And finally, the third lesson is it's so important to realize as Christians that very often the revelation of God's will for our lives is progressive. He will only tell us what step two is after he has told us, after we have obeyed step one. I don't like that because I don't like faith. So when God tells me to take step one, I want to know what step two is and step three is, and I want to know the happy ending that's on the other end of all of this. That's how I want things. But God doesn't operate that way. He gives us step one, and then so often he will not reveal step two until we have taken step, uh, step one in that particular uh, circumstance. And so why would God reveal uh, something further of his revelation and his plan for our life? Why would he give us additional revelation if we've showing that we have not, we don't have a great enough concern for his revelation to obey the first bit of revelation that he has given to us. So the importance of always taking step one in order to discover step two and to realize that so often this is the way that it works in the Christian life and as it works here in this situation. The path of obedience is always the path to greater revelation. So here this entire passage just filled with the theme of the importance of being led by the Holy Spirit. A simple truth. You say you took one solid hour to state something that is something that just about any Christian uh, would know. Yes, I'm guilty so of doing exactly that. It's a simple truth, but it is an important truth that we are prone to lose sight of, even the most serious of us as Christians, and an important truth for any Christian who wants to experience the Christianity as it's given to us, in the book of Acts, an important reminder too, because I have experienced it in my own life and I know that there has to be other people in this room that have experienced it too, where you look here this morning and you say, that was once a part of a living, dynamic part of my Christian life. But I have gone safe I have gone into a predictable Christianity. I have gone into one that is, it doesn't involve risk or faith. That's what I've settled into. And maybe this morning there's this kind of longing for the old days, the longing for thinking about, yes, it was wonderful to be excited, to be used by God in that way, but it's been long years since I've been open to that in my life and I want to return to it? Is my life being led by the Holy Spirit? If so, terrific. But if not, I am missing the greatest adventure that a person can experience in life, and it is the adventure of a human being being led by God Almighty and the person of the Holy Spirit. Wrestling crocodiles has nothing on this. Big game hunting in Africa has nothing on this. Climbing Mount Everest or the corporate ladder has nothing 
on this life and the excitement of this life. And it's not only spiritually exciting and spiritually fruitful for us, but the wonderful things that it brings to others as they come into contact with God through our lives in the same way that someone once did for us. Let's stand together now and we'll pray. Lord, this is a beautiful passage, and I have um, rightly divided it this morning, exposited it here this morning, and I've done some sanctified boasting in you today. And I pray and we pray for one another that you would take all of the life and the vigor and the dynamic of the Christianity that is in these verses that we have read here this morning. And, Lord, you would transfer it fully into each one of our lives and our experience with you. I ask and we ask that you would confirm your word and the truth and the reality of all of this with accompanying signs and wonders in our lives by leading us by your Holy Spirit in this life and the way that we've spoken of today for the rest of today and tomorrow and next week and next month and next year all the way out through to the end of our pilgrimage and our being ushered into heaven. Lord, we beseech you and from the privacy of our own heart, we ask that you would freshly fill us with your Holy Spirit and that you would not allow us to settle as we are so prone to into a Christianity that is so far removed from the one that we have examined today. Once again, take us by the hand as our Lord and as our God and lead us out into the fullness of this Christian life. And we ask it and we pray it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. If you